You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. some of the words you're singing this morning, because sometimes I think we sing it, we don't really think about what we're singing. Look at that. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. There's going to be a day, the Bible says, that uh, has already been set apart in the mind of God concerning me and concerning you. Uh, that day is a day that is set. Uh, no doctor, no hospital, no medicine is going to change the end result of that day. That day is a day that I will leave this world. I will breathe my final breath on this planet. My heart will stop beating, and I will die. But that will not be the end. That will be just the beginning. And the reason it's just the beginning is because death has lost its grip on me. You know why that is? Because death didn't have a grip on Jesus. When it was time for Jesus to walk out of the tomb on the day that it had been determined by God in eternity past, the day that Jesus would walk out of a tomb alive, nothing would stop it, nothing could prevent it, nothing, nothing could stop Jesus coming out of that tomb. And my faith in him has given me freedom from the fear of death. So when that day comes, and if I'm still here serving in Lumberton, and God takes me home, and there's a coffin somewhere with my body, and don't you think for a second, don't you think for a millisecond that death has won? Death has lost, not because of any good in me, but because of the good in Jesus Christ and what he did on my behalf. Hallelujah, death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. If you have some anxiety that wells up inside of you concerning that day that has been appointed for you, Maybe, maybe we might want to lean into that and ask about where we stand with Christ and the gospel. Am I wanting that day tomorrow? Am I wanting it this afternoon? No, I'm wanting it exactly the same time God wants it, and he's already determined it. And on that day, I will have just begun to live because death has lost its grip on me. Turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We... Um, We've been walking through this book for quite some time now, and I really appreciate your uh, patience. This has been the longest running series that I've done at this church since I came here in 2013. And I felt like the book of Acts demanded it, and also I felt like this is what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do. We're going to take a break in a few weeks, and uh, we're going to actually do a, a series of sermons, getting us ready for that building that is about to be complete just down the parking lot here. I walked in there this morning. It's incredible. Uh, all that is taking place even this week. Uh, they were laying ceramic tile in the welcome area over there. The bathrooms are completely tiled and redone. The bathrooms look amazing. The floor looks amazing. The paint job looks amazing. I can't wait for you to see it. By the way, there's a video posted uh, on Facebook, and I think you can get to it from our website, of a little quick walkthrough there if you want to kind of get a look at it. Um, and, of course, we'll be posting those on a regular basis. Acts 17, let's look at verse 16. I want to read a few verses here. This is now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him. Notice that. Paul's spirit was provoked. 
as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? And others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Father, we pause this morning to give you praise and honor and glory. Um, Well, I, I just can't get past what we just sung. The fact that the majority of this world this morning is scared to death of the concept of death. They are scared deep down, a deep down fear, because, Father, they they have this idea that that there's nothing after death, or if there is, it can't even be known. And, Father, all kinds of religious leaders and all kinds of religions have posed all kinds of ideas about what that looks like. Some say that there's going to be some kind of utopia that we enter into, and it doesn't matter what kind of life we've lived, that everything's going to just be okay. Others believe that once we die, we go into the grave. That's the end, nothing more. Our life is over. That there's nothing past death. Father, whatever the belief person, belief of the person, Father, it wells up fear in our life. And Father, I am so thankful. I am so thankful. Well, whatever means I'll leave this earth, I don't have to fear what's on the other side because that's already been settled. And Father, that was a gift that you gave to me, not because I deserved it, not because I earned it, but because of your good grace and you're a good father. But what Jesus accomplished on that cross was enough. What he accomplished when he walked out of the tomb was enough. I don't need to seek for anything else and neither does anyone else. No vain philosophy, no education, no degree hanging on a wall can give us what we desire most, and that is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our life beyond death is secure. And Father, it's a life everlasting. It's a life of peace and joy that it fulfills what we've been longing for our entire life. It's all fulfilled right there. Is fulfilled in following Jesus, is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And Father, I recognize how undeserving that I am of that great gift. Father, guide us in your word this morning. May you be exalted. I thank you for each person here. I thank you for each person online this morning that's watching. I pray your richest blessings upon their life. And Father, I pray that if there is a deep, lingering fear of that which we have no control over, death itself, they would look inwardly at where they stand with you. Father, we love you. We really do. We love you. We thank you for your goodness and your grace that we never deserve. We thank you for your mercy that you've poured out in our lives over and over and over again. And 
Father, we thank you for your word that is perfect and pure in every way. And Father, I pray that it would guide us this morning, change us from the inside out. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In 2016, a student at the College of uh, Georgia Gwinnett College uh, decided that uh, the faith that he had found in Jesus Christ, other people needed to know. So as a college student on a 260-acre campus in Georgia, he decides that he's going to take a stool, that he's going to go out in front of the food court, and that he is going to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ publicly. Now, he knew that the college had all kinds of rules and paperwork that he needed to fill out. The Gwinnett College had a, a, uh, a rule, set of rules and set of paperwork that if you're going to do any kind of public proclamation on their campus, that you, number one, you had to do it in their free speech zone. Now, on a 260-acre campus, there was only two free speech zones, and it was basically two pads of concrete on sidewalks in two different locations on the campus. That was the place where, where this student could go proclaim Christ. But before he did that, he had to fill out all the paperwork, and there were several layers of it. He had to tell them exactly what he was planning on doing and even exactly what he planned on saying. And after he went through months of paperwork and, and months of waiting and looking and hoping and praying that he would be able to simply stand in front of his peers in a public location and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, what had changed his life. That's all he wanted to do. Well, he finally got approval to do it. So he decides that he's going to go down after he's got all of his approval and all of his paperwork and all of the, everything's in order. His name is Chike Uzabunum. It's an interesting name. I, I had to look it up to make sure I got it right. Uh, he goes out in front of the food court in the free speech zone of his college. He has all of his paperwork. Everything's been approved. He sets up a little pedestal, and he begins to publicly preach at Gwinnett College. And all he's doing is talking about human frailty, how that life is short, how that that we're all going to face death and how that, that, that you need to be able to face death with confidence. And he begins to talk about Jesus. And he begins to talk about how Jesus has changed his life as people simply walk in and out of the food court. Well, 20 minutes in, uh, the campus police show up. And the campus police go over and they interrupt him and they, they stop him and they, they tell him that he's going to have to stop, that he could give out materials if he wanted to, only in that little free speech area. He could give out materials there if people wanted, but he could not talk about Jesus Christ and the gospel on the college campus, even though he was in a free speech zone and even though he had the approval of all of his people above him, everything was in place. And here's the reason. The students that were walking by, who many of them never gave him the time of day, and what they were hearing him say in, in those moments as they were walking by, simply walking by and hearing him talk about Jesus, those students were triggered. You've probably heard about that term, right? It's where people get upset or are deeply bothered by something you might have said or maybe something you would have done. And and he's accused of causing aggressions because he loves Jesus and he wants to talk about Jesus. What's interesting is, is our, our college campuses at one time used to be a place where you could go and share ideas freely. That was the whole point, right? That your idea, my idea, we could sit down, we could talk about it. It was a place of 
It was a bastion of free speech where we could go and, and we could talk about Jesus or we could talk about Islam, we could talk about Buddha, we could talk about anybody we wanted to. We could, we could debate those ideas, we could talk about our truth claims, and we could sit down in a place and have those kinds of conversations. But Mr. Uzabunum on that day was silenced. Of course, lawsuits ensued. Uh, he won. Uh, now his case is going to go between before the Supreme Court because his case is very particular in that although he had done everything he was supposed to do, it was still shut down. And so, of course, now the college has backed off, and when lawyers got involved, everybody changed, and the policies changed a little bit. But he's going to take this on to the Supreme Court because there needs to be a decision about what is free speech. Is free speech only for those that the society agrees with, or is free speech free speech? Can we talk about our faith? Can we or can we not? His, his lawyers, I thought, said something very interesting. He said it. This is a 260-acre campus. But if that 260-acre campus was shrunk down into a football field, do you know how much space was dedicated to free speech? The size of a sheet of paper, 8 by 11 and a half. That's how much space on this 260-acre campus, two little small concrete pads, if you shrunk it all down to a football field, it'd be the size of this piece of paper where you could share openly about whatever you believe. Paul is going to this world's center of art and philosophy, Athens. Now, as he has moved from Asia Minor, and he's moved across and heard that Macedonian call and went over into Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, there was certainly a culture shock with Philippi and Berea and Thessalonica. Big difference from what he saw in Asia Minor. Nonetheless, there are lost people, people who have no idea who Jehovah God is, less, even less Jesus Christ, even less the crucifixion, even less what the Old Testament has to say about the gospel. Paul is going into an area that is as different as any area he's ever been in. But what's amazing about Athens, and, and by the way, this, this Athens and their impact on the globe our education system, our college system is built on the idea of being able to debate, to debate philosophically, to be able to talk about ideas, to be able to have an open dialogue about what is true and what is false. Paul enters into this area and he's, he's waiting on Timothy and Silas to join him. And while he's waiting, he looks around and he sees the opportunity to begin to engage with the gospel. This Macedonian call, if you remember, while he's in Asia Minor, he has this dream of a man in Macedonia saying, come over, Paul, we want to hear your message. He goes over 130 miles, but if you look at the whole of what he's been able to accomplish in Macedonia, from one perspective, it looks like it's been an absolute failure. Each of the towns that he's been in, there's been very few people that have responded to the gospel. If you look at Philippi, he ends up being thrown in prison. And a few people respond. You see him in Berea. There was a hunger for truth in Berea. But by, by the time he gets there and begins to teach, the Jews from Thessalonica come over and they run him off. After he'd already been ran out of Thessalonica, a few people came to faith there. He's able to establish a church in, in Philippi. He's able to establish a church in Thessalonica. But if you look at the whole, the pain versus the accomplishment, you'd have to say that the pain has been far more than the accomplishment. Could it be that God called him to Macedonia to suffer for the gospel? And in that suffering, 
He's seen some people come to faith in Christ, but overall, overwhelmingly, it's not been a huge success. And now he finds himself in, in Athens. And Athens, with its diverse culture, a myriad of people from all over the world there who are seeking truth, Paul finds himself in a place where it's, it's difficult, very, very, very hard to bring up Jesus, to talk about Jesus, and they even have a, a common place in which to start and being able to talk about the gospel. But Athens is radically lost. No presence of the gospel whatsoever in Athens. And Paul's going to be the first one to bring it up. The culture of Athens is not a lot different than our own culture. There, there are all kinds of people making truth claims about what is real and what is false. There are all kinds of people talking about what is real and what to believe and what to put faith in. But isn't it interesting? And I find this interesting every time that I see it in the news or when I listen to a podcast, I find it very interesting that the one particular group that is always singled out as the one no one wants to hear from is Christianity. Do you find that interesting? I don't know with Mr. Uzabunam if, if he had been Muslim and he was proclaiming the teachings of that religion. I wonder, I don't know, I wonder if he had been shut down. But if you look across history, if you look across cultures, what you'll find is a tolerance for just about every worldview coming down the pipe except for those who name the name of Jesus Christ. Do you find that interesting? I do. Why do you think that is? I'll tell you why. It's because the spiritual warfare that is going on in this world, where Paul says that even leaders in high places are being influenced by it, recognize, even in their lostness, that Christianity is a threat. That Jesus Christ resurrected truly is the truth. If, if it's a lie, then why attack it? If it's a lie and it has no basis, then why spend our time trying to shut it down? Only that which makes sense and only that which is true, Satan is focusing his attack on and has been for many, many generations. So why is it that Mr. Uzabunum gets shut down? Why is it that on college campuses across this country, the name of Jesus brings microaggressions? Why is it that the resurrection and the life that, that has been changed by Jesus, why is it all of a sudden that that's a threat? It's because it's true. And it will change your life. Just as we saw with Paul in Thessalonica, they were worried that these men who have come are going to turn the world upside down. I'll offer to you that the gospel turns the world right side up. Let's take a look at Paul in Athens. And what I want us to see and what I want us to look at is this culture in Athens was so far from God, you're going to find a lot of things that's very similar to our own culture. And as such, Maybe there's some things that we can learn from Paul and how he engages this community that is far from God, how he engages them with the gospel. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. I want you to underline that. That word is a unique word in the Greek, and it's, it has this idea that, that Paul inwardly is very upset about what he sees. Paul looks around as he's waiting on Timothy and Silas. He begins to just kind of walk around in Athens, and his spirit was provoked that when he looks around, notice, he sees that the city is full of idols, full of idols. As we read on, we're going to find that, that they even had an idol set up with a nameplate on it to the unknown God. Let me give you a little historical context of what's happening here. And if you travel 
to Athens today, you will see a lot of the same things that Paul saw. You will see thousands. I'm not, I'm not talking about hundreds. I'm talking about thousands of statues. Some historians believe that where Paul was walking at that particular place, there was over 10,000 statues to, to various gods from all different cultures with different names. All the, Greeks, all the Greek gods of mythology were there. All their statues were there. All their busts were there. All their heads were there. And they had the nameplates at the bottom. And what you would see is people walking up to various statues and laying down sacrifices of vegetables and flour, or flowers and, and, and money at the feet of these statues as they worshipped various gods. It was like a, it was like a mall of gods. Oh, you want this God over here? Then by all means, worship Him. Oh, you want this God from Asia Minor? Then by all means, worship Him. So whatever God you wanted, whatever, whatever sacrifice you wanted to give, you could find a God to give it to. As a matter of fact, you could give a sacrifice to many different ones all at one time. It was this, it was this shopping center, this buffet of gods. Why did that provoke Paul? Well, Paul believes in one God. Not only did he believe that when he was a Jew, and that's what he'd been taught his whole life in Judaism, but he also believed it as a Christ follower. And so when he looks at these people, and I believe, I believe what Paul was provoked about is how much the people were misled. I think that's what got under Paul's skin. That not just the statue standing up, but that, that people all across Athens and people coming from all over the world to worship their God of choice in this city that was completely given over to idolatry. And on the inside of Paul, he's mad. He's angry. That's what that word means. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue. He finds a Jewish synagogue there. And he begins to reason with the Jews, and he begins to talk with devout persons. He begins to engage the culture around him. I want you to see that, that Paul, immediately upon coming into Athens, he doesn't take a vacation. If anybody needed one, Paul needed one. He's been beaten. He's been run out of town. He's been traveling mile after mile after mile by foot. Paul could have easily got in Athens and take a little break, but Paul doesn't take a break. He does what God has called him to do as he goes. He comes in Athens. He, he goes in the synagogues. Notice that word, he reasoned. Remember, we picked that word up last week. We talked about how that, that Paul would reason and he would proclaim and he would argue and he would persuade. Here we see that word again where he sits down and there is a dialogue that is happening, both with the Jews, both with devout persons. And notice this, he goes into the marketplace. The marketplace. The agora. That's an interesting place. The marketplace here, the agora. If you go over to Greece, you can still go to this area. This is the same place that over 400 years before Paul, a guy by the name of Socrates, would walk into this marketplace. And in this marketplace, there's people buying and selling. In this marketplace, there are people uh, judging cases and doing court trials and all kinds of things. But in this marketplace, there are people debating ideas. They're talking about their religion, their beliefs, and what is true and what is false. And Socrates, a philosopher, great philosopher, would walk into this area, and he would have debates with people about what is true and what is false. Paul is in the same place. He's in the marketplace. Notice what happens. Verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, those are two group of philosophers, uh, the Epicureans, they were always looking to find comfort. The Stoics, they were, uh, they were a little bit of afraid of things. They had this deep fear about all kinds of different things. So you had two groups of, of philosophers here. Paul gets their attention, 
And notice what they say about him. What does this babbler wish to say? Some of your translations may say seed picker. It's a derogatory term. So here's Paul in the marketplace, and I don't know if he's got a group of people around him and he's engaging or if he's standing up on a platform and he's teaching. Either way, he gets the attention of these two groups of philosophers, and they begin to listen to Paul, and they begin to mock him. And they call him a seed picker. And you know what they're saying? They're saying, well, this guy, he's obviously, he's obviously ignorant. And what this guy has done is he's went from town to town and he's picked up a little truth here and a little truth there and a little philosophy here and a little religion there and he's put it all together and now he's got something he thinks is true. We'll find out. They're mocking him. So they come to him and they said, others said he seems to be preaching a preacher of foreign divinities. Oh, well then, if he's got some gods, we want to know about that because it's not like we don't have enough already. If he's got some God he wants to talk about, let's, let's hear him out. And some are saying, well, he's talking about a resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Oropagus. The Oropagus is this big stone mound. And for years and years and generations and generations, people would gather on this mound and they would, they would debate. They would talk about what is true and what is false. They would talk about their religions and their, and their philosophy. And so they bring Paul there because they wanted to hear something new. Look at verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. There is this search for truth. There is this insatiable desire with inside the Athenians to want to know what is real, to what, what can be trusted and what cannot. Now, you would think that in a place that has 10,000-plus gods and 10,000-plus religions and philosophy and art and education and, and, and books and all that you could possibly need to live a fulfilled life, you would think that they finally arrived to where they don't need to hear anything else, but yet they haven't. And why is that? You see, inside of every human being, there is a desire to know what is real. It's true. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, he said that, that we're all made with this desire to seek after God. Now in Athens, they've been seeking God after God after God after God. Why do you think they're still looking? Why do you think they're still looking for something? It's because those 10,000 plus gods have brought no satisfaction into their life whatsoever. It's never filled the hole. So, they're always looking. Always looking for something new always looking for some new information, always looking for another teacher to come in, another, another guru to tell them about yet another God, which then they can set up another statue and put a brass plate on and lay some flowers down and lay some money down and feel as though they've checked the religion box for the week. Our culture is not too far from that, is it? Matter of fact, I think what Paul finds in Athens is pretty close to what we see today. The people are still looking and seeking to fill that hole that's inside of them that they were born with. They keep looking for more education, more understanding, more Google searches to try to figure out what does life mean, especially now in this COVID-19 pandemic. People have been forced to stop. People have been forced to slow down. People have been forced to cut out everything from their life, and they've had to stay home for a couple of months on end, and when they're home and when they don't have something to engage in and something to do, those life questions begin to bear upon your life, and you begin to wonder, what is this all about? 
I would offer to you that right now, right now, right now, is the best time that we've seen, maybe even in our lifetime, talk about Jesus. Because I believe there's some severely broken people. It's amazing how we will fill our lives with all kinds of activities so we don't ever have to deal with the pain. And what COVID has done is forced all of us to stop. And a lot of people don't want to do that. A lot of people would rather just keep staying busy, keep looking for other gods, other information, other things that fulfill their life to get them past this next rough spot that they're going through. Verse 22, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. What does Paul do here? Paul immediately points out their need. After Paul has walked around and he's seen all these statues, Paul immediately points out their deepest need. He says, I see that you guys are plenty religious. He says, for as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship. Notice that, the objects of their worship. They are worshiping these statues that represent these false gods. He says, I also found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Paul says, as I was walking around, I noticed that you have one statue over here that, that had a plate on it. it. says, well, to the unknown God. And the only thing that we can figure from that is, is that the Athenians want to make sure that they had all their bases covered. So just in case there was one God out there that happened to be the one true God, we want to set up a statue and, and just acknowledge the fact that we didn't know him. So to kind of give us some kind of side out or some kind of fine print that just in case there's a God out there we didn't acknowledge, we don't want him to be upset with us. So let's put up one. And let's put a plate on there to the unknown God. Paul says, you guys are so religious. To make sure you didn't offend anybody, you've got a statue to an unknown God. And Paul begins to put his finger on the real problem right at the very beginning. He begins to point out the problem that they've been seeking and seeking and seeking and seeking, and yet they found nothing. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, Paul's going to have a challenge here because what the people in Athens are going to hear is just another god to add, along, add alongside their pantheon of other gods, another statue, another nameplate. That's, that's the challenge that Paul has. That's the challenge that you have. Is that out here in our culture, when you begin to talk about what you believe, people just say, well, that's fine if you want to believe that. Yay for you. But what does that have to do with me? Because in this isolated society in which we live that you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe, and as long as your belief doesn't deal or confront my belief, then we can all just live happily ever after. Well, are we living happily ever after? With our pantheon of gods and all that we believe, and in fact, the untruths that people are buying into, do we have a country that is united? Do we have a country that is in peace? Do we have a country that is moving forward? I would answer no to all three of those. Yeah, Paul's got a challenge here. He says, let me introduce you to the only God you really need to know, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by hands. Now that was a shocking statement because standing on top of this rock mound, you could look all around you in Athens, and what would you see? Temples. You would see temples to gods all over the Athenian landscape. 
So here's Paul standing on this high place, and no doubt he points across the landscape and says, the God that I serve does not live in a building. How could he? Uh, a God that is truly God, how could he live in a building? That seems ridiculous. It's because it is. This is the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of the heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man. He's not some kind of weak, benevolent God that is controlled by humanity and lives in some building that you've built. I mean, think about, the, think about the premise of that, that if your God is so small, if your God is so weak that, that humanity can build a building that God can dwell in, that's a pretty weak God. Would you, have to, would, you, would you agree with that? Sure it is. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Did you know that God doesn't need any of us? God doesn't need me this morning. God's ministry, God's mission, God's love, God's grace, God's presence, God's power is not contingent upon me. I think as, as good Baptists, we need to get down deep in our soul and a, a deep understanding of this God who exists who does not need us. He invites us to be part of what he's doing. He pours his grace out on us. And as he adopts us as his children, he loves us and pours out all kinds of blessings in our life. But don't you think for a minute that God's ministry, his life, his power is contingent somehow upon us. Do our prayers represent that? Do we come to God with the idea that that God is not some kind of slot machine up in heaven where we put coins in and we demand something of him? But God, rather, is a sovereign, holy God who invites us into his presence and says, yes, I will answer your prayers as long as they line up with my will. This contrasts with the Athenian culture because the Athenian culture thought that the gods were somehow dependent upon humanity. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, has determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Paul takes and brings it down to where they live. He says, there's a God in heaven. He created everything. He's not contingent upon you. He's not subservient to you. God is above you. And not only that, but God has been active in your life, Athenians. He, he determined when you would be born. As such, he's determined when you will die. God has been involved in where you're going to live. You thought you were in control of all that, right? I know some of you uh, were in the military and you moved all over the world and you lived in all kinds of different places. And some of you, some of you didn't live in one place for more than a year or so. You were constantly living out of boxes. You thought that the army was involved in that. You, you thought that the military was dictated. No, God dictated that. God decided not only where you would live, but where you would go. God dictated that. God was in control of that. God said that you would be born on this particular day in this particular region, and you would live and grow up in that area. Incredible, isn't it? Incredible to think that God is that much involved, even in the life of the atheist. Even in the life of the atheist, God is dictating his or her life. He's in control. You have some choices in there? Yeah, you're making choices. Absolutely. Make no mistake about it. God has been guiding your life, whether you acknowledge him or not. Verse 27, here's the point, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Some commentaries take this verse and do a lot of damage to this verse. There are some liberal commentators that would take verse 27 and say, see, verse 27 means that 
There are people all over this world that are going to believe in God and going to find God even though they don't know about Jesus. That is a false, false teaching. The point that Paul is making here is that God has been active in your life and God's been doing that through, through revealing himself in creation, revealing himself to you each and every day of your life. Every time you look at the sun and the stars, every time you look at a flower, every time you consider a cell or a star or a sun or a moon, God has revealed himself. Romans 1 says that God has revealed his invisible attributes to the world. We call that general revelation. Why did he do that? so that we would find our way to him. Paul says, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Not talking about a statue, not talking about an idol, but talking about the God who's the creator of this universe. He's not off somewhere running the universe and, and is distant from us, just like Greek mythology taught. No, he is very near. And then Paul does something crazy right here. This is amazing. Look at verse 28. He says, for in him we live and move and have our way, have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. You know what Paul does here? He quotes from two Greek poets. That Paul is well studied enough and well read enough that, that he quotes two of their own poets, Aramendes and Erastus. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art an imagination of man. Here's where Paul begins to bear down on the Athenians. Think about the reasoning here. Paul says, if God is an idol that we've created, stone, gold, silver, just like these other 10,000 statues you've got set up out here, then your God is a weak God indeed because your God is contingent upon you building them a statue. But if we are God's offspring, if we are God's offspring, and two of your poets two of your own poets seem to indicate that we are the offspring of God. If we are the offspring of God, then how in the world did we make God? Pretty sound logic, isn't it? Verse 30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now the rubber hits the road. Paul has declared that there is a God that they need to know, far greater than all the statues that they've built and that this God made them, not the other way around. That, that this God is true and he's real, but God's time of mercy is going to run out. You only have a limited amount of time to respond to this true God, and if you don't, then you will face judgment. So repent, turn, verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world. Not only is there a day fixed that God will judge all of humanity, but there is a day fixed when you will breathe your last breath. The Athenians, these philosophers, will spend a lot of time talking about death, life, and what happens after death. And Paul says here, it's fixed. And he's going to judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Have you noticed what's missing in this sermon? Have you noticed what's missing in Paul's debate up to this point? A lot of theologians are offended by this. Some theologians believe that Paul absolutely failed at the Oropagus because he didn't get into the gospel. He didn't get into the cross. He didn't get into the resurrection, although he's going to mention it. He didn't go deeply into those things. If you contrast what he says here with what he said in Thessalonica, you'll see a big difference. Why? Because the people that Paul is speaking to has no idea who Jesus is. 
They have no idea what he accomplished on the cross. They have no idea that Jesus was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. So where does Paul start? He starts with where they are. And where are they? They got a pantheon of gods. So Paul starts there. He says, of this he has given assurance. Look at that. Given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul, when he gets to the end here, he says, let me give you the proof of what I'm saying. I mean, it's one thing for Paul to say that there's a God and he's created and, and that he's not like your idols. He, he's, he's real, he's tangible, and he's in control. It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to back that up with truth and facts. How does Paul back up his assertions? By saying that a man was resurrected, that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. There's no doubt in my mind that when Paul was in the marketplace, when Paul was in the synagogue, when Paul was in the streets, Jesus was coming up. I think he's already been talking about it. Here in this particular setting, he eventually gets to Jesus by saying, there's a man who's been resurrected from the dead. I want to introduce you to him. But that in and of itself, that fact in and of itself, undergirds everything I just told you. There's a God in heaven. He's over all time and space, even death itself. He rose a man back to life. And if Jesus did that, if Jesus came back to life, that every single human being on this world, on this earth, needs to lean into that reality. Needs to lean into the fact that Jesus did, in fact, resurrect. And if he did, that's a game changer. If he did, if he beat death, the very thing that, that has frozen the world in fear, then there is a God in heaven, and he is in control, even over death itself. A couple things I want to show you. It comes right out of what Paul did here. First of all, I want you to see how Paul restrained his response. Go back, go back to verse uh, 22. I'm sorry, go back to verse, uh, go back to verse, uh, verse 16. There it is, it took me a while, verse 16. It says, Paul was provoked within him. I told you to underline that. Here's what I want you to see. That Paul was angered on the inside of himself. He was, he was really bothered by what he saw, but it did not prevent him from engaging that community with the good news of the gospel. His anger didn't overcome him to the point to where he just lowered the hammer on these people, told them they're a bunch of idiots, and told them they've lost their minds and get really angry and really judgmental with them. Paul restrained his response. It's, Christians, can I talk to you just a moment? Please hear me. There's some things that are really provoking you online right now. There's some things you're seeing on social media that are really provoking you. And you're engaging on these social media platforms and you're doing it with such anger and such, such hate that no one hears the message you're trying to get across because all they hear is what they already believe about Christians that were judgmental, were angry, were hateful. Listen, I know you're provoked. I'm getting provoked just about every day over some. But I can never let my anger, I can never let that get in the way of engaging someone who needs to know about Jesus because if I do, all they're going to hear is the anger. They're never going to hear about Jesus. They're never going to hear about His mercy. They're never going to hear about the resurrection. Are there some things we need to get angry about? Yeah, I think there are, but we're going to have to figure that out. We're going to have to determine if we're talking with a lost person, are we really being effective when we blast them and tell them how ignorant they are? I don't think so. You know, Jesus often reserves some of his harshest comments for those who were Pharisees and part of the religion of Judaism. Did you ever notice that? 
You notice how patient he was with the woman at the well? You notice how patient Jesus was and how loving he was with Zacchaeus? You ever notice how Jesus was engaging? He would debate. He would absolutely pose questions and teach. But the way he dealt with lost people, radically lost people, the woman with the issue of blood, how did he deal with her? He dealt with her with love and compassion. Paul was provoked to his core at the idolatry, but he did not let that anger get in the way of being effective with the gospel. Second thing I want you to see that Paul did, this is a fancy word, but it means basically to contextualize the gospel. Contextualize. You put that on the screen. What does that mean? It means to start where people are. Disney does a really good job with it. Have you ever been to Disney World? I don't know if you've noticed this, but every ride you get off of, there's a gift store. That's interesting, isn't it? I think it's genius. What they've done is they've, they've contextualized that ride and, in fact, that whole park to separate me from my money. That's what they're good at doing, right? I mean, if there's ever been a company in the world that's really good at this, there's very few that's better than Disney, Disney World, Disneyland, Disney Corporation. So here it is. You, as soon as you walk into the park, you're inundated with stuff that you absolutely have to buy, right? I mean, would it be food or balloons that are like 20 bucks? And you do it. You just lay the money down. It's like you don't even think about it. You're just, you're just bleeding cash because everybody else is doing it. It's because Disney's done really good at contextualizing, helping you to see that you've got a need, and that need is more Disney stuff. You just can't get enough. And just so make sure we get all of our bases covered, as soon as you walk off a ride with that kid, gift store. You see, Disney starts where they think you are to get you to spend your money while you're there. Guess what Paul's doing here? He's contextualizing the gospel. What does that mean? He starts with their obvious need. What's their need? Well, they got all these gods around. It looks like you're all for religious, but you still haven't found truth or peace, have you, Athenians? You've got all the gods in the world, but yet there's still a hole in your heart. And you, you're still needing something, aren't you? That's where Paul starts. That's where we need to start. Is Where is this person? Where? In this picture, in that domain of darkness, how far are they from Jesus? If they're a long way from Jesus, they don't know anything about Jesus, maybe we need to start where Paul did. Maybe we need to start about a God who created the world, and he's holy, and he's separate from us, yet he's engaged in this world. He's not far from us. Start with where people are, not where we think they should be. Our lost people talk like lost people. They use language that you don't use anymore. They, they watch movies that you don't watch. They... They go to places you don't go. That's what lost people did. That's what you did before you came to Jesus. To go back into that place of domain of darkness, we got to start where they are. And yes, you're probably going to get offended. And yes, your spirit is going to get provoked. But remember, this is a person who stands between heaven and hell, walking a knife edge between eternity and hell, and the possibility of coming to faith in Jesus. Reasoning. Paul reasoned. He engaged. He had a conversation. Questions. Don't be afraid of questions. Don't be afraid of people asking questions. He contextualized. He, he started where those people were. And that's what we have to do. Finally, I want you to get this. The, the best tool in evangelism is not your mouth. The best tools that you've got for evangelism is your ears and your eyes. Seeing where people are listening to their hurt, listening to all the pursuits of all the things that the world has to offer, yet 
they still have a gaping hole inside of them. I'm convinced that if we'll just listen, we'll open our eyes to our street, to our cul-de-sac, to our community, you'll find more than enough opportunity to engage. We have to start where they are. And lost person, let me, let me say this to you. God is not far from you. Just what he said to the Athenians, God is not far from you. You might think that because of the pain and the anguish that you're going through that God has somehow abandoned you. God is as close to you as he's ever been. What he's asking for you to do is to surrender your life to something greater than yourself. That Jesus Christ can be trusted while all the gods of this world take you down a path of destruction and pain and loss. Nothing's going to fill the hole in you except Jesus Christ himself. Won't you consider him? Why is it everyone's pushing back on Christianity? Why is it that that's the only thing you hear in the news that should not be listened to, that should not be considered? Why is it that is the only faith? Because I would offer to you that's the only valid place to put faith. Father in heaven, our world is, is deeply broken, deeply divided. I still believe, I will go to my grave believing that the gospel is the answer. Father, for those here today who are Christ followers, um, Father, I, I'm, I'm afraid that, that people are beginning to withdraw to themselves and not engage our communities because of fear, because of, of what our society is telling us about our faith. We're believing that more than what our Word says. That if we truly believe that greater is He that is in us than He that is in the world, if we truly believe that this message of the gospel has changed our life, if we believe that, then our community desperately needs to hear that. Let us not be afraid to enter that place, that marketplace. Father, the question each disciple of Christ needs to ask themselves today is, where is my marketplace? Where is the marketplace that I can enter into? A place that you've already provided. Where is that marketplace that there are people who are desperately lost, who put their faith in all kinds of false gods, who found no peace whatsoever. Where is my marketplace? Once that's been identified, Father, do not let them rest. Do not let them be satisfied until they enter that marketplace with the good news of the gospel. Father, for the lost watching today or in this building, there is no other way. There is no other path. There aren't many, many ways to heaven. There's only one. It's only through Jesus. We love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.